Welcome to the Fearless Health Podcast with host Dr. Anne-Marie Barter. Dr. Barter is on a mission to help people achieve their health and wellness goals and help men and women live their best lives fearlessly. Dr. Barter is the founder of Alternative Family Medicine and Chiropractic in Denver and Longmont, Colorado. Cheryl, thank you so much for being with us here today. I'm so excited to have you. This is a topic I certainly need to get a little bit more educated, and I definitely get a lot of questions about this in practice. But for starters, what made you become a midwife? Hi, thank you so much for having me, and I really appreciate being here um, on the Fearless or the Fearless uh, podcast. So thank you for that. Sure. So. Um, I really was interested in how maternity care functioned in the U.S. Um, Like most people, I didn't know much about it. I was part of the health food industry, and it sort of kept, like, coming into my orbit as I I worked there. And I began to realize that the maternity health care system in the U.S. was not serving um, mothers and babies in the way that it should. And... um, I read some books and became more educated and decided to become a midwife from that education. So it was really a passion to help mothers and babies have better birth experiences and better birth outcomes. Very cool. Very cool. I can see why that's important. You know, I personally have never been through birth, but I hear it is a transitional life-changing experience. So, I mean, I feel like in the birth world, There's so many questions, so much confusion. People find out they get pregnant and then they kind of don't know what to do. Um, Do they want to find a midwife? Do they want to have a birth in a hospital? You know, what's the difference between those two? So first, what is a midwife? Yeah, so a midwife is a um, healthcare provider that provides maternity care, um, we technically, our scope of practice starts at menarche. So when like first menstrual cycles um, happen um, and all the way through menopause. But in the United States, um, midwifery is really focused on the childbearing year. So um, as soon as somebody becomes pregnant, um, they can get their um, care from a midwife and then the birth is attended by midwives and same with the postpartum care. Um, in the U.S., we have two different types of midwives, and that can be confusing to some people. So we have certified nurse midwives and certified professional midwives. Um, and within both of those groups, there are some different designations as well. Um, but for simplicity's sakes, let's say we have the two. <laughs> and um, and I, I say it that way because it's really um, state regulations that define our scope of care. So... Um, Every state in the United States has different laws and regulations about um, who can be a midwife and their certification that they're allowed to have. Um, In all 50 states, certified nurse midwives can practice, but they may only be able to be a practicing midwife in the hospital. Um, In most states, um, they can certified nurse midwives can practice in the hospital and sometimes run a birth center as well. Um, And then Certified professional midwives are often um, only home birth midwives, um, but sometimes we also run birth centers depending on the state regulations. So um, 
and sometimes some certified nurse midwives also do home birth. So all midwives care for moms and babies. Um, it's more about the state regulations about where we can practice and where we are, where our scope of practice is. Holy moly. How do you pick? Like there is, <laughs> there's a lot of, um, categories there. There's a lot of options. Uh, so how, how does one decide? And I think that that creates some of the confusion around what to do when you're pregnant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because most people find out that they're pregnant and then go to their regular um, GYN, so their gynecologist who's been giving them um, their annual um, pelvic exams, um, or they go to their you know family practitioner and ask. Um, and most of those referrals are to OBGYNs, which uh, obstetrician is an amazing um, care provider who specializes in high-risk pregnancy. And they are surgeons, and um, they're trained in providing high-risk surgical care when that's needed. Mm -hmm. Or there are, if there are midwives around you. So before even looking at hospital birth center, home birth, are there even midwives near you? There might not be. And that is a huge problem in the U.S., um, and that's why our um, rankings in the world aren't as good as some of the other industrialized countries, um, because the countries with the best maternity health care systems have midwives that run the labor and delivery, like uh, childbearing year, and then they refer and use co-care with obstetricians when that's necessary. So um, in the U.S., Look first to see, do you have any midwives near you? If you do, um, if they're a hospital base and that's your only choice, then that might be the best choice you can have at any given moment. Um, but if you have options, if you have birth centers near you, um, home birth midwives and hospital-based midwives, that is amazing. So then you get to have really real choices as to what you want for your um, pregnancy and your birth. Um, uh, one thing to look at is, uh, your comfort factor. And then another thing is your physical risk factors. So, um, yeah, we can talk more about that as well, but sure. You know, first looking to see, do you even have midwives near you? And if you, so then if you only have a small percentage of midwives, then really that's where you're going to go. Okay. So first question is, all right. So Let's say someone is a high-risk pregnancy and they really need to see an OBGYN. What makes that a high-risk pregnancy that really should only, um, they, they should not seek out a midwife potentially? Sure. So there are two categories. So one is if you um, have pre-existing health conditions beforehand. So type 1 diabetes, um, type 2 diabetes that... Um, is being controlled through medicine, um, our predispositions, um, hypertension that isn't being controlled, um, previous uh, heart conditions, strokes, um, blood clotting problems, those can all be pre-existing conditions. And those would be situations that you want to have more of a high risk type of monitoring. Sometimes conditions develop during pregnancy and um, skilled midwives are able to spot when something is developing. 
Um, and I actually think that our care is even more uh, attentive and acute than a lot of the um, hospital-based practices. Mm-hmm. Um, most midwives practice where we do a continuity of care. So we have one provider for one patient. And with that patient or client, um, we see them throughout their whole pregnancy. So if there's even a variation of their normal state, that's something that I'm usually pretty attuned to. And most midwives are pretty attuned to that. We're like, well, that's, that's a different way of being, or like your blood pressure is higher than it usually is, even though it's not out of range, let's see if we can bring it back into a normal state, um, into your normal state. So it's even not just like a normal state. It's like, what's your normal? Let's start there. Um, And if that happens, then usually what happens is um, we transfer care or some midwives do have co-care privileges at the hospital. So um, for example, I'm the state regulations that I have, I'm not allowed to uh, deliver twins, unfortunately. Hopefully that will change in the future. Um, But um, one of my clients was diagnosed with twins. And so she went to a hospital-based midwifery practice and I was no longer her care provider and they became her care providers. So it just kind of depends on what comes up. Um, as midwives, we're always trying to bring people back into like a normal pregnancy, a normal birth, a normal postpartum. And that can look different for a lot of different people, but we're always restoring health, like always looking to be as healthy as possible. So twins was my first question on it. Something that could develop during pregnancy. Is that like, uh, you know, something that could be outside of the scope? My So thanks for covering that. My second one is if you have the cord wrapped around the baby's neck or if the baby's breech, how, how are those two situations handled? Yeah. So um, twins and breeches, I'll start there because um, those actually are different in every state. So um, some states in the U.S., you are allowed to do trends and breaches. Um, and so you really want to get to know your care provider and have a lot of um, intuition and trust with your care provider, whoever that is, uh, whether it's hospital-based midwives, birth center, or home birth. Um, so like the state of Washington, Utah, I believe Texas is also allowed to do twins and breaches at home or in the birth center as well. Mm. I know. <laughs> I'm like... My state needs to jump on board with that. We'll see. see. (laughs) Um, So the cord wrapped around the neck, this is such a common thing that happens. It's about one third of pregnancies where the baby will have the cord wrapped around their neck in some way. Um, I've even seen it where babies will have it under their arm. Um, You know, they'll, the cord can get wrapped all over their bodies. Um, And so What I usually tell my clients who ask about this is um, the cord wrapped around the neck is actually one of the safest places for it to be during birth, which is surprising. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We don't usually think of something around our neck as like being the safe thing. But um, if you think about it, the baby is tucked in and this is actually a little bit of a gap of a space when they're being born. So as they come through, the birth canal, um, it actually prevents the cord from being compressed um, as they uh, um, are born. And so it um, usually isn't discovered until either the 
birth of the baby, or sometimes we can hear it in the heart rate when we're listening to the heart rate during the labor. Um, and what we do is we unravel the baby at the birth and they're usually quite happy about it. <laughs> Things go on. <laughs> How funny. I think that must have changed. I guess the must have changed since I've been in school and learned OB. They were like, this is an emergency, whatnot. So I wonder <laughs> if things have like just totally shifted or the way they're teaching it or, or maybe my program in particular, but I wasn't that interested in obstetrics anyway. So there was that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was no, it's only, it's only an emergency if it really is an emergency. And so if the baby can't come out because they can't see, mm-hmm. yeah, then, you know, we do have the ability to cut and clamp the cord right as they're being born. Um, sure. But usually we just kind of like tuck their heads in and they flip out. It's, it's a, it's like a technique. It's kind of hard to describe over audio or online, but um, it's something that we teach all the midwives on how to do to give birth um, with a baby with a short cord. Um, And occasionally I've seen a cord that will actually just break. um, And so we clamp it right away as soon as we catch that. Awesome. I'm going to hit, I'm going to hit all of probably the misnomers that you get asked about. So is the mortality rate with, um, you know, birthing a baby higher with midwives or in the hospital or how, how are those statistics? Yeah. So, um, we have a really amazing, um, collection of statistics through the Midwives America, um, Midwives Alliance of North America. Um, there's a statistics project that collects out of hospital statistics. So they do birth centers and home births. Um, to participate in that is voluntary for midwives. Um, so I participate in it because I think it's important, but not all midwives do. Um, and it's really the only data collection that we have that's solid, good data collection. Sometimes people try to do data collection over birth certificates, but that isn't very valid because the birth certificates could be entered wrong. Um, anyway, there's a whole statistic. We could take a statistic statistics class if we wanted to, but um, um, the thing about the statistics is that one about, it depends on the state, but about one to 10% of babies are being born out of the hospital. And so um, it's hard to compare apples to apples. Um, And in addition, in the hospital, you know, I'm not going to take somebody who has had a previous history of um, heart disease or stroke or something like that. And that could be a complication that winds up, you know, not um, working out for the mom and baby. So um, that's out of my scope of care. And so I'm already risking out people that have a higher risk. Um, I will say that as midwives, we have a very low mortality rates. Um, And we often are able to catch something before it becomes a big problem, um, especially in states where we can access um, higher levels of care when needed. So if we need to transport, we do. And we go into the hospital and we get the care that we need at that time. Um, So I don't know if that really answered your question, but... Yeah, uh, it did. It did. (laughs) Okay. It's It's hard to compare apples to apples is what I'm saying. 
Um, but in general, the U.S. is lower in, in the world for maternal mortality and infant mortality. And so we have a lot of improvement we could do. And I believe that midwives are the answer to that improvement. So incorporating us in all the levels of the maternal health care system. Okay. And I, I think, you know, one of the biggest, I think, common questions is how much pain am I going to be in? And, um, you know, what is going to be done about that potentially in a home birth, you know? So how, how is pain managed per se in a, in a home birth? Yeah. So we definitely have our techniques at home. Um, water is a big one. We often use water either in a birth pool or even just the shower or the tub can be really nice. Um, the thing that's really um, different that, again, makes it sort of hard to compare apples to apples is that in a home birth setting, you will have had the same midwife with, midwife with you throughout your entire care. Whereas if you're going to um, a hospital-based care or a group practice, you're going to meet maybe 10 to 15 different obstetricians, maybe 10 to 15 different obstetricians and midwives. And so maybe you'll even see them just once or maybe you never met that person. And it's highly unlikely that you've met the nurses who are going to be on staff. And your nurses, when you're in labor, are really the people who are caring for you. You may not even see your obstetrician or midwife until you're pushing your baby out. So, um, so that's already one difference is that in a home birth um, and usually in a birth center setting as well, you know your midwife really, really well. You've had hours of conversation with this person. Um, they've gotten to know you. And so there's a deeper level of trust and comfort with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you have that deep level of trust and comfort and you go into labor and you know the people around you are people who love you and care about you and your well-being and your baby's well-being. That already creates relaxing hormones. And so um, we do everything we can in a home birth setting to reduce the stress hormones and stress hormones can increase pain. So we're already, you know, surrounding this person with like love and comfort and it's your own home usually. And so we can, you can like do whatever you want, you know, if you're like, I want to go outside and take a walk or mm-hmm. water my plants or, you know, go play in the garden or whatever it is. Like you can do that during labor. Um, there's a misnomer that like labor is really hard and intense the whole time, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's a rhythm. There's like, a, it's a totally different time span of labor. So uh, you can do anything for one minute and that's usually the longest that you'll experience a contraction. So there can be a buildup and then the contraction and then a, a release. And then you get a break between that. And we really, um, what's the word, capitalize? We really like capitalize on those breaks where we're like, okay, now relax, breathe, you know, let your body catch up with itself. Um, and so at the peak of when you're about to give birth is usually when it's the most intense and we have so many tools and resources to help manage and cope with the intensity of that one minute contraction. Um, And so that's really how we manage pain at home is that we surround you with 
love and comfort and care and um, give you all the tools that we have. If that's hydrotherapy, if you like that, you could mm-hmm. be in your own bed, you can pet your animals. Like it's just a different experience than to be like, okay, I think I have to go to the hospital. Oh, I go to the hospital. They come in and check me. They leave. They come back. They look at the monitors. They come and check me. They leave. You know, like that's a totally different experience than me being like, okay, I'm going to take your vitals and then I'll hang out and help you breathe for the next two hours, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Do do you have concerns about the drugs um, that they use for blocking pain, like an epidural and or, you know, inducing um, somebody to go into labor. What's your thought on those things? I know there's a lot of um, differing opinions on that. Yeah. Um, So the, I want to validate that sometimes all of these interventions are really important. And I think that they're being, very much overused. It's like any technology, we need to know how to use it appropriately and when to use it appropriately. So um, I think that in most cases, pain can be managed um, with a lot of care and respect for the person who's giving birth. Um, And occasionally, yes, we're gonna go from home into the hospital to get pain management and that's okay. But there is an experience of when the baby is born and released into the world um, in a natural birth setting, and all of that pain disappears from the body, and the relief that the birthing person has around that experience, they fall in love. So much oxytocin and so many endorphins are created in that moment, and they, you know, scoop up their baby and look into this little person's eyes with so much just like, um, so much love, so much of those oxytocin hormones and endorphin hormones um, that when people get epidurals, um, and again, there's a time and a place always, so I never wanna um, invalidate that experience, um, especially if you've had um, Pitocin-induced contractions, which I'll talk about in a second. But um, the epidural, it, it lets that pain be released. And so the chemical compound of that hormone is different. And it's not to say that it won't still happen as like a total like embrace and release of love into the um, experience of the mom and baby. But um, there are midwives who say that um, they believe that it kind of transfers that a little bit, like it transfers that intensity and that pain. Well, and the anesthesiologist and the people that kind of like made the pain go away, if that makes sense. Again, it's a little bit esoteric, it's a little bit theory. Um, And again, I have definitely been in cases where an epidural was the right choice at the right time. Sure. Yeah. And, and then, oh, go ahead. If you so have, if, no, no, it's okay. If you have Pitocin contractions, yeah. like those are not normal. <laughs> those are not like normal contractions. And so being induced will increase the chances of an epidural and that's okay. Um, I actually think that 
if we're going to intervene, um, usually it's a whole cascade of interventions and it's, um, it's kind of like treating chronic disease. Um, you know, if you're going to intervene, you kind of need to keep intervening to like mitigate the other effects. And so in, um, getting contractions started with Pitocin um, is very effective. And it also creates a state that is not as, um, not like what your body would have done outside of that. So I definitely think that that's probably part of that package usually. And with Pitocin, is there more tearing? Is that a myth or is that a, is that true? Cause I've, I've heard of a lot of tearing when you induce contractions. Yeah. So again, it, it comes with the whole package of interventions because oftentimes then the person is on their back, they're um, giving birth on their back. Whereas again, my experience is mostly home birth. So in the home, they can give birth in their bathroom, standing up, laying down sideways, like whatever. We're, we're in all kinds of positions. Usually hands and knees is the most common um, that I see, but um, people really like to be in different positions. Yeah. Um, and so if you're on your back, that can increase tearing. Um, although in some home births, I've seen people choose to be on their back and it did not increase tearing, but that, again, it's a different process. Mentality. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're choosing it. They're like, actually, this is the best position for me to get my baby out. And they're right. listening to their body, which is what I'm encouraging them to do. Mm -hmm. And so the Pitocin increases the strength of the contraction and those tissues, your, the birth canal tissues really need to be able to stretch around the baby as the baby descends. And if you're pushing against that, trying to get the baby out as fast as possible, the tissues just don't have time to stretch and catch up. And so tearing could be more frequent with Pitocin, with epidurals, um, just because of that whole nature of pushing on your back and intense contractions and the guided, like, give it all you've got pushing mentality. <laughs> yeah. And so you have this, you've birthed this beautiful baby and now it's all about breastfeeding or not breastfeeding, or you should just do formula or, so do you have any comments on number one, having a baby latch, because I know that that's a real struggle um, for a lot of new moms. And, and also the follow-up question to that is, do you have a preference on breastfeeding versus formula and kind of talk through that a little? Sure. Um, so again, at home, we're not rushing the breastfeeding relationship we're letting there be time around when the baby has the first latch. Um, time constrictions in the hospital and with providers, they are often trying to check the boxes, right? Because they've got things to do. <laughs> and they have, you know, maybe 10 other people that they're caring for at any given moment. And so they've got to check the box, baby's latched. You know, we've got mom up to pee, we've weighed the baby, we've done the things. Sorry, one thing, let me interrupt you real quick. I just thought of something else, delivering the placenta um, is that generally rushed or, you know, how does that work in the hospital and then the home birth and then we'll get to latching? 
Okay. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. No, it's mm-hmm. okay. We've gone through pregnancy. We've given mm-hmm. birth. And now we're I know. Pregnant. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> almost done with giving birth. I'm almost done. <laughs> I love it. No, it's great. This is my favorite topic. I can do this stuff all day. Um, uh, so in the hospital, um, the obstetrician or, well, usually the obstetrician, I'll kind of put it in their field because this is more common with them, is that they'll come in right as the pushing stage is happening. And even almost as the babies come out, um, again, they have a lot of time restrictions too. And um, so I'm not shaming them or saying things. It's just, they're not with you the whole time. Sure. So um, it's usually the nursing staff that's caring for you um, under their supervision. So the obstetrician will come in right at pushing stage and they've, they've got to get out of there. <laughs> and so they want that placenta out in the first five minutes. Um, and so they want the placenta out in the first five minutes and then they want to suture and go. Um, you know, they're not caring for the baby. They're not doing anything else. They're not going to do the follow-up part, um, the inner, uh, immediate postpartum care. They are just there for the birth, the placenta, suture, out. At home, we are more holistic. Like we're like in a bigger time span because I'm just, I'm not going to like leave someone's house to go to somebody else's house, like in the middle, you know, like I'm going to, if I had two people in labor, I would send somebody else to take care of that other person, which is actually kind of unusual, but it happens. Um, And so um, I I have more freedom to wait a little bit longer for the placenta. Um, the regulations that I'm in in Colorado gives me up to an hour, which is pretty common. Usually the placenta is out in the first 10 minutes. Um, but there is a interesting way that the body works. So if you are having contractions about every three minutes before the baby was born, then you probably won't have your first contraction after the baby's born until six minutes later. So it's usually about double the amount of time. So if it was every four minutes, it might be every, it might be eight minutes until you have your next contraction. And even then that next contraction doesn't mean that's when the placenta will be born. Sometimes it takes a little longer. Um, but again, usually 10 to 15 minutes, the placenta is ready to be born. Um, usually the mom just either, you know, we give a little traction uh, on the cord. We kind of hold it a little bit um, and she gives a push and pushes it right out. And that's, you know, how we manage that. Um, it's not usually painful and, um, we are monitoring for everything. So, um, we were talking about like complications and stuff like that. So there's usually two midwives at every home birth, um, and at birth centers and things like that as well. But my bias is home birth and that's how I practice. So, (laughs) um, we usually have two midwives there. So I'm whoever's on like helping the baby be born and, um, the placenta, we're also watching for bleeding, making sure that there isn't too much blood loss. Um, and, um, we know how to manage it if there is, I like to say, you know, I went to school for four years, not for the babies that just are like easily born, not for the babies that fall out. Um, you know, they come out in the car on the way to the hospital. They come out in a taxi. They come out, you know, in somebody's backyard or in the toilet. You know, uh-huh. they just like fall out. You're like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, but I went to school for four years to know what to do when a baby needs help coming out. When a baby um, isn't, you know, coming around the way that we expect them to. 
Um, I went to school to understand what to do in those emergent situations and when I need to take action, when I need to sit back, and when I need to go to somewhere else. So those are all part of the training of being a midwife. Awesome. All right. So good. We've delivered the baby. Now let's go to, you have to try to get that baby to latch. And that's tough, right? I think <laughs> a lot of people struggle with this. So I'm, I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about this. Yeah, a lot of people do struggle with this and I have a lot of heart for that. Um, mm-hmm. But as a midwife um, in the setting that I practice in as, as a home birth midwife, we give that mom and baby time. And so we're not trying to force the baby on the breast right away the baby will show when they're ready. And I've seen um, when I was a doula and helping um, people have their babies in the hospital, I've seen babies need like an hour before they were ready to start nursing. Mm -hmm. But those nurses, they were like, no, you got to get your baby to nurse right now. And so they were trying to, you know, take the nipple and shove the baby on. (laughs) And that baby was not having it. And um, I had a, a client who, a, a doula client who actually smacked the nurse's hand because the nurse was just being so vigorous trying to get these, this baby to latch. And I was, and we were both like, no, it's okay. Give the baby time. They just were born for goodness sakes. Mm-hmm. They practice how to nurse inside the womb. So they have a memory of it. They know how to do it. They practice it. They suck their thumb in the womb. They make um, nursing motions in the womb, give them a minute. So when they come out, they'll show signs. They'll start chomping their lips. Mm-hmm. They'll, um, you know, they'll start responding to cheeks. If their cheek is being rubbed, they'll move their hand toward their head towards the cheek. Um, and so give them a minute to like collect themselves as well. Mm. And then when that time comes, um, get them close and let them explore. Um, again, this is a new situation for them and it might be a new situation for a first time, um, breastfeeder. And so, uh, just have some space around that, um, transition, I guess is what my advice is. Um, and then also find people that can help. So, um, a lot of hospitals are now becoming breastfeeding friendly. They are, they usually have lactation consultants on staff. Um, as a midwife, I have a lot of breastfeeding um, training um, and it's not everything. And so if I have some complications that I'm not sure about, I'll refer out to other people, um, lactation consultants and things like that. And so, um, you know, just really, again, honoring that time and then finding the support that you need um, as it goes, because breastfeeding on your day one, or even in the first hour is going to look different than day three. And that's going to look different than week one, week two, week three. So, um, you guys are in a moment of, uh, you and the baby (laughs) speaking to all the pregnant people out there Mm -hmm. are in a moment of transition. And, um, I hope that your care provider holds space for that transition and gives you the best advice and the best guidance possible during each of those transitions, because it's not just like, I've got it. <laughs> it's it's mm-hmm. a process for everyone and for every baby. Totally. And do you, um, 
know, I know what my take on formula is and I could just rap about this for a little bit, but I'll just leave that question to you. Um, breastfeeding versus formula feeding. Yeah. Um, breast, there's nothing like breast milk mm-hmm. grow hands down. We cannot formulate anything that is exactly like breast milk. Um, that, so if somebody cannot breastfeed or chest feed at all, then what I would suggest is to have breast milk available at least for the first week or two. Um, and if, if you could even longer then to do supplemental breast milk, um, formula is something that if it's absolutely needed, then it, then do it right. Like feed the baby. (laughs) Your babies need to be fed. (laughs) They're, you know, not going to tell you that they're hungry, not like a toddler. They, you have to, you have to keep them hydrated and fed. Um, and so I don't like put formula into like, uh, category of like, it's the worst thing in the world or anything like that, because it is necessary on occasion. It's sort of like my package of like, on you know, sometimes things are necessary. And, um, even if you can't or don't feel comfortable with breastfeeding, then my suggestion would to get to, would be to get breast milk. Sorry. <laughs> I'm just so excited. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> Um, would be to get breast milk at least for the first week. And if you could get it for longer than to do it for longer, um, your baby's whole digestive system is brand new, brand new. <laughs> They've never digested anything. And breast milk is the best thing for them to digest. Um, they have done studies to show that preemies. So if a person gives birth to a premature baby, the milk that that person makes is actually more suitable for that premature baby than somebody who gave birth to a full term baby. Mm. So don't let anyone tell you that your milk is bad or wrong or anything. It is the best thing that they can have. Um, and I know we have all kinds of variations in our bodies, right? So I've had people who could only nurse from um, one side because they had like a defect in the other um, breast. Okay. You know, like we have all kinds of interesting things that happened to us. Um, and so they did probably about 75% of their nursing that they could, and then supplemented a little bit with formula and that worked well for them. Right. Uh Um, and then we have other reasons why we might not want to nurse or breastfeed. And so, um, my, my heart goes out to your newborn and just saying, please get some breast milk for them. (laughs) There's lots of ways you could get that. Awesome. Is there anything that I didn't ask that's important on the birthing process or after or anything that I didn't cover? Mm. I guess one thing that I will, it kind of goes back to the very beginning about um, obstetricians and hiring a midwife because we kind of were like, oh, there's so many choices in this and that. Mm -hmm. I I want you to um, for all your clients and, you know, for anyone out there who's thinking about these choices to really trust your instincts, um, go and interview several people. You don't have to stick with your obstetrician. You don't have to stick with your midwife. Um, you know, if there's only one obstetrician in the town that you live in, which is quite possible because there's actually, um, maternity care deserts in the United States, then, okay, fine, you can't go interview lots of people. But if you have choices, 
go interview, you know, one or two obstetrician practices and one or two midwife practices. Um, I usually suggest people interview at least three midwives to really find the one that you feel the most comfortable with. Um, even though we all practice the midwifery model of care, we're different people. We're going to have different ways of explaining things and different ways of talking and honoring you. <laughs> and so um, I just really want to reiterate that, like, you actually know your body better than you might think you do. And um, a, I think a good midwife will help bring that out in you, that that trust and that empowerment. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you? Sure. Um, so I run a business called Experience Midwifery. Um, so that is support at experiencemidwifery.net. Um, or you can find me at experiencemidwifery.net or .com um, on Instagram and Facebook. And I offer online midwifery coaching. So it's not quite, I'm not the care provider, but I want to provide that midwifery care to everyone who wants it. And so again, if you don't have midwives in your area, it's a really beautiful way that you can still get midwifery care in your prenatal and postpartum experience. So um, check me out at Experience Midwifery and um, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Cheryl, for being here today. Thank you so much. I appreciate this. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed learning with us today, please give us a five-star review, comment, like, and share our podcast with your friends and family. As always, if you'd like to learn more information about today's guest, please head over to fearlesshealthpodcast.com for links to their site and other educational resources.